Hello, Managing Madrid listeners. This is your host, Kian Sobani. In a moment, I'm going to be joined by Mike Goodman. Uh, we talked all kinds of analytics, stats, Real Madrid, tactics. It was a ton of fun. I'm really excited for you guys to listen to this episode. Before we get into that, I had a quick announcement to make. First ever live Managing Madrid podcast in person. We just made it official. April 28th in San Francisco. So if you're in the Bay Area, we're going to the Chieftain Irish Pub. The Pena will be there. We're going to watch the game together. We're going to stay afterwards, record a post-game show, have drinks, um, talk some football, answer questions. It's going to be a ton of fun. So if you're anywhere close to San Fran, Bay Area, California, just make the trip uh, because this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Who knows when the Managing Major Podcast will ever be in town again. Um, uh, but in all seriousness, if it goes well, we're going to come back. But don't miss it. Uh, okay, without further ado, this is the Managing Major Podcast with myself, Kian Sabani, and Mike Goodman. Let's go. Nice article in the Managing Madrid uh, blog. They're wonderful lads that do a great job there. And worth reading about that man there. Kareem Benzema needs to rest and the numbers reveal why. Welcome to a bonus edition of the Managing Madrid podcast. We try to get high-profile guests on Fridays when we can because it's a rare day. We're not recording a show. And we struck gold today. Former Grantland, former Ringer, occasionally still writing for the Ringer, managing editor of Statsbomb, writer at The Athletic, half of the Double Pivot podcast. Mike Goodman is here. Mike, welcome to the show. Thanks. I'm happy to be here. You are the, uh, I forgot to mention this to you, maybe you already know, you're the second Mike to appear on the Managing Madrid podcast that also does Double Pivot. Ah yes, Kelly. Yeah. Kelly has preceded me. Yeah, he has. He has. He made uh, an appearance. Uh, the mic. The mics are everywhere. The mics are everywhere. We. He, this is good. Now, now, now people will be able to tell us apart. Uh, that is a very hard Maybe. thing to do because your voices <laughs> are actually not that dissimilar. I don't know if anyone's brought yeah. that to your attention or oh, not. Yeah, we are aware. Our yeah. voices are not dissimilar. Our takes are not dissimilar. <laughs> um, he came on at around the time well just before the season started so we talked a lot about like replacing Ronaldo and how that looks like and you fast forward and it hasn't looked great unfortunately for Real Madrid fans um what is it like for you this time of year does it ever slow down for you you're you're just you're covering so much ground right now yeah we do I mean especially at Statsbomb we're always doing stuff but certainly you know your focus changes right so you know at the beginning of the season there's always sort of a feeling out process of what all these teams are going to be and then you know, the races develop. And then by this point of the year, you're trying to focus on the stuff that is interesting. Like, it's lo- like so like this year, there's really no races in La, in La Liga. Certainly yeah. not for the title. And maybe there will be for like fourth. But, you know, in England, there's, you know, the, the top and the top four race are both great. So you, you do definitely like slant coverage to what ends up being interesting as the season goes on. Yeah, I think that's what I like about this time of the season is that like when when it first starts, it's kind of like this o- overload of, like you look at the schedule like, oh my God, there's like 10 games I want to watch today. But then like at this point, you're like, okay, that game means nothing because it's like 10th versus 13th right. and none of those are going to get relegated or promoted or like in a European Right, race. exactly. Uh, so you can kind of just pick and choose what you want to watch. Yeah, but it's also it's kind of like what your parents told you about like 
you know, like when your education when you were young, where it's like, you know, you're only going to need 15% of this when you grow up. You just don't know what 15%. And so early in the season, you really do sort of have to pay attention to everything so much because you don't know like yeah. which team is going to make the real like like you know who's going to be Getafe this year this this season, right? Yeah. You just don't know. So you have to like have a grasp of everything that's going on before you narrow it down. No, it's true. Like, I mean, I I go back to my notes from earlier this season. I I wrote out the most like ridiculous details that I would never remember now. Right. Um, it just you know, but that's actually that's like probably the best parallel I've ever heard was the the analogy of <laughs> the stuff you just don't remember in school. It's like you know you just don't. Um, and then stuff like comes back to you as you watch games, I guess. Uh, but then you really yeah, kind of just know the stuff about the teams you need to focus on at this point of the season, and that's it. I. I really liked. I, you wrote an article for Statsbomb. Um, don't ask me what day it was now, please, because I don't. I don't know. I just know that it was a few days ago, <laughs> and uh, it was about XG in Germany specifically, and how the gist of it was that German teams tend to not defend that well up unless you're the, the top three. Uh, yeah, that's right. And that and that also just went into also just comparisons with La Liga and Premier League naturally. Um, and I thought it was interesting also because it told it confirmed a lot of the stuff we see with our eye tests. And when you mentioned that in Spain teams just can't really not that they can't but they just don't really attack that well if you like go from top to bottom. Right. There, there is in Spain. There's there are just more teams that struggle to attack. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I use like a, I, you know, I looked at the expected goals and I use like the one expected goal cutoff, and there are eight teams currently in, in in La Liga that fall below the one expected goal cutoff, like cutoff level. Whereas like in Italy and England, there are I think four or five. In Germany, you know, it's a smaller league, but it's, it's an eighteen team league, but there's only two. Um, so there are just more teams in Spain that really, really struggle to attack, at least this season. I think there, to me, like when I was looking at that and I was reading that article and I was looking at the stats, I also feel like there's kind of this elephant in the room when we, when talking about La Liga, like we all, everyone who covers La Liga, we all kind of try to talk ourselves into La Liga is so amazing. And it is, don't get me wrong. I thoroughly enjoy it. And like, by all metrics, like in the past 10 years, they're the best team in the league, uh, the best league in the world in terms of just like what they've done in Europe and, and all that. And the depth this season is, has been good in La Liga from top to bottom. There is some parity despite what Barcelona is doing. Like beyond that, there's like actually some good parity. But I think what the elephant in the room is to me is that it's actually not that exciting this season. And like we all like went crazy over Villarreal against Barcelona last weekend, 4-4. And we all were like, "See, this is why La Liga is so good." And I, and I, I'm the one. I'm one of those people who actually tweeted that. I was like, after that game, I was like going crazy because it was so entertaining. But then, like, you really like think about like how much you actually sit through. Like, I wrote that article about Atletico for Stats Bomb, which you graciously let me write. Uh, it was kind of just me also, kind of I guess verbalizing what it was like to watch Atletico. Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a little fun. bit of a it's a little bit of a tough year in Spain this year, and there's a couple of reasons for that. I mean, part of it is, I mean, you know, Atleti are always like that, but you look towards the top of the table, and Getafe are like that this year, and um, yeah. I mean, Alavish are just not a very good team, but they also sort of trend in that direction. Um, so it's not, I mean, so this year part of the problem is that 
three teams near the top of the table are extremely conservative attacking teams. And what you don't have, and again, this is a little bit just, I think, a fluke of this season, is that you don't have any teams that are, say, poorer teams that are playing really wide open, right? In the past, you've had years where, say, Celta Vigo have been extremely attacking-oriented, even if the, even as they've only been kind of like an average team. Or, I mean, you've had years where, like, Rayo comes up and they're not very good at all, but they're, like, insanely open. Yeah. Um, and you just you don't really have any of those this season for whatever reason. That's right. Um, I, I wanted to ask you, how much of this is correlated with European success? You know, I'm, it's hard to say stylistically. Um, there is certainly, like, an economic, like, component to it where just you know more teams having more money means better players that's just like how the world works and it is kind of a problem for other leagues that england is so rich at the moment that there's just a lot of talent flowing there even if like those mid-table teams aren't always using them like fantastically but like if you look at it like there would be years where guys that washed out at barcelona say like an andre gomes or or, or lucas dinier would drop down the La Liga table a couple of a couple of places. Mm-hmm. Now they're playing at Everton. Yeah, and and that is, I mean, that's a real dynamic, and that's a dynamic that that leagues are going to struggle with, and the balance changes, and it goes back and forth. But like that, that is absolutely a factor in what's going on. I I wonder, like, this is the first time in a long time I really felt the shift mm-hmm. in terms of like. Premier League in Europe. I I I felt like I kind of knew it was coming because you give geniuses like Pep and Klopp and all these right. guys enough money, eventually they're going to crack the code. Like they're going to just they're going to win Europe. Yeah. And one of one of I think the under-discussed things is that what's finally happened is managerial talent has flown into England. Yeah. Like that's taken a little bit longer, but these teams having money, I mean, now you sort of look top to bottom and you have Guardiola, you have Klopp. I mean, like Manuel Pellegrini is at West Ham, right? Like these are like – we're not just talking about the top couple of teams in, in, in England right now. Everybody in England is has looked to spend and get a manager. Now, it doesn't always work. You know, Ronald Koeman washed out at Everton. I use Everton as an example again. Um, but, you know, Marco Silva is a, is, you know – was brought in to Watford, and he was okay, and then he went to Everton, and Javi Grazia has been great at Watford. But you look at all these teams, and they are all really looking globally to bring in the best managerial talent as to sort of complement the amount of money they have to spend on players. And I think you're right. that is like This is like the first year where all of that is kind of coming together. And you can you can see the results, right, in Europe. Like, this is the first year where, like, England has come... It was a little bit like obviously it was a little bit last year with City and Liverpool, but this year, you know, England has come roaring back in terms of you know as the the Europe's big three have sort of faltered a little bit and taken steps backward. It's been the English teams that have really filled in the gap. I also wonder to that point about the managers, like when you have that much money, like for example, like <clears throat> I, I think there are a lot of great managers in La Liga who eventually like. And like you didn't mention him, but obviously like Rafa Benitez is another one who right, went sure. to Newcastle yeah, yeah, obviously yeah, yeah. was in the second division last year. Um, Pellegrino, uh, Mauricio Pellegrino, who did so well at Alaves, got to the Copa del Rey final a couple of years ago, then went to to England. Now he's back at right. Leganes. And then you have, I, I think about like Katafe's success, for example, and, and I, I wonder like even like their 
they're like core. If they make the Champions League, which I don't think they will because I think Valencia is making a surge and maybe Sevilla will or, will bounce back. But even their team might get picked apart by like some lower English teams. Yep. I wonder how much like they would even be fun in the Champions League next year. Yeah, it's hard. And, and you know, you can't really blame like a Yatafe if they like cash in at that point, right? Yeah. Um, it's just, it's it's a real challenge. Um, like I, I, you know, there's no easy fix to this other than time, right? Things things evolve over time. But part of what we're seeing here is that you know, as TV markets exploded and as you know the game became more globalized and rights were sold overseas, England really did have a very egalitarian approach to distributing that money, and. That strengthened the league top to bottom, and now that now now the top teams are actually trying to claw some of that money back as they negotiate new contracts. But you know, La Liga it has always been concentrated at the top, right? Like the share of money that goes to Real Madrid and Barcelona, and to a lesser extent Atleti, dwarfs what everybody else gets, and that has I mean that has real implications for the league and and how competitive they can be, you know, up sort of up and down the table. Um, now you know they Spain produces so much talent. And, and develop so much talent that to a certain degree you can you can get away with it um but it, it you know as that gap widens it becomes harder the scouting is is, is a huge thing too like we i i even though like someone like munchie is rated pretty high sometimes i just also feel like he's kind of underrated because like <laughs> yeah. when when you're when you're up against it like that financially like the consistency of them just bringing in so much yep. talent and then reselling and then and there are there are like years where they'll, where they'll sell like half the starters, and there's like no drop off to the next season because they just yeah. know how to scout. Um, it is yeah. it is somewhat ironic that Sevilla looks so good in the first half of the season without him there, and then like they tanked for like I don't know six seven weeks, and then he comes back and the manager gets fired, and it's like okay we're just gonna go back to doing it my way. Yeah, and and probably the right call to just bring him back at that point is yeah it's, it's a track record. I don't know if you saw, but Ralph. Uh, Hassan Hudel had a quote today like exactly about this he said uh, obviously Southampton manager he said we have six teams in the Premier League on the level of Bayern Munich so we play against Bayern 12 times a season there are four or five clubs with the quality of Leipzig or Leverkusen and we are the mains the Freiburg Augsburg of the Premier League I thought that was like interesting in the sense that like when it's, it's yeah. right yeah I mean now like Talk about Southampton. I don't think that there's a particular reason why like Southampton can't be the lever- a Leverkusen in the Premier League, and they have been in the past. It's not like say Leicester City has all that much more money than Southampton, but it is sort of true for where they are right now. Yeah, and I I also thought it was interesting because the the, the sheer just like continuity of tough games on the schedule for these guys, yeah, as opposed to a PSG. Or yes. even a Juve. I I wonder how much that changes the preparation for I for mean, a big European to. game. Yeah, it, it, it has to. Um, and the scheduling is different, and all of these things. I mean, at some point, it's like I'm not gonna cry for these teams because they also like, you know, the, there are there are real benefits to it too, right? Like you have. Um, you have the ability to have better facilities. You have the ability to make more money playing for them. Like, so. It, it, competitively, it's really interesting, sort of the different dynamics. But I, you know, I don't like Ralph Hasenhuttle went and took the money at Southampton because they paid him a bunch of money for him to put up with being the minds of England, right? Like, yeah. so I mean, that that's sort of you know, he knows what he's signing up for. 
I saw you tweet about analytics today and kind of just like the sports that are ahead of the game. And you mentioned baseball. Sure. Um, and I, you know, I, I kind of grew up actually writing about basketball and, and just like the, it's, it's amazing how spoiled I was at that time. And I didn't really know it. <laughs> you switch over to football writing and it's like, you know, you're clutching and then, you know, eventually now it's getting better with like places like stats, bomb opt but it's not really universally like, um, it's not like, it's not available like on a wide scale where anyone can just go and look up any data you want. Sometimes you just have to be That's lucky. That's right. It's hard. Yeah. Or, or you kind of have to know where to be or or the connections or who you work for. What's the one stat that football doesn't have yet that you're like, I can't wait till we have that stat. So um, that's a good question. A thing we are working on at StatsBomb, and it's not just us, lots of, lots of people have sort of worked on this, is it... <sighs> It's, it's basically a way to quantify um, passing in some manner. Like we've gotten pretty good with expected goals and stuff at, at, at sort of quantifying and rigorously like like putting together an understanding of what shots look like and what the end of moves look like. Mm-hmm. Um, we're still a ways away on the defensive side of the ball because so much of that is is context context related and and scheme related and opponent related and all this stuff. But I think what we're working towards now is being able to put together a, a mathematical understanding of how passing the ball works and understanding not only like okay this pass succeeded and it moved the ball up the field. But understanding things like, well, what if they had played a different pass? Would that have been better? Mm-hmm. Or if, the, if yes, the pass was completed, but it was inaccurately completed and slowed the momentum of the move. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, things like that. Like little things like that that, that go into um, the end result of creating or not creating a shot at the end of a move. And I think we've had a hard time quantifying that. And we've, we've sort of gotten better as, as, as the years have gone on and we can look at things like, you know, we can now look at things like ball progression and, and who moves the ball up the field most, who moves the ball up the field fastest and slowest, you know, which teams are more direct, which teams are less direct, all of these kinds of things. But what you want to do on some level is be able to sort of synthesize all of that into one thing that lets you start from, uh, you know, like... What you'd ideally what you like what we do now is we look at all the component parts and then you sort of like you have your mental model in your head and you're like, well, they do this well and this not so well and this pretty well. So at the end of the day, I think that they're, you know, okay. Um, but what you want, I think, is some sort of rigorous way to combine all of those things so that you can start with the number or the metric or the model or whatever you want to call it, and then you look at that that output and then what you do with your analysis is you unpack that output so you start from that final point and work backwards as opposed to having all the component parts and sort of like estimating in your head what it all means and i think that's what we're getting towards that i mean that (laughs) it sounds so useful and kind of complicated at the same time because it just it just seems like some of this stuff will be subjective um you know so like all of you know the, what I what I always say about about advanced stats and and all of these metrics and analytics and stuff is that what you want to do is you want to have a better starting point for the conversation. There's always a, there's always a like a tendency, especially among people who who sort of are like passingly familiar with stats or familiar with them as fans and want to use them in an argument, to to use stats as like the end point for the discussion. Right? They want to say like you know, 
haha, it's right that, you know, like my preferred winger is better than your preferred winger. And this number says so. Yeah. And really what, what, what we look to do and what you look to do inside teams as well when you're doing consulting is what you want is just to start the conversation from a better place. Um, so, you know, you look at a, a, a midfielder who divides opinion in whatever way, uh, like Jorginho at Chelsea pops to mind, right? Yeah. And like, does he just pass the ball sideways or does he pass the ball up the field? Is he such a defensive liability that his passing doesn't matter? Like all of those are relevant questions. What we can bring to the table is we can look at something that we call like deep progressions, how, how, how often you move the ball into the final third and say, wow, Jorginho does that a lot. So if we're going to have this discussion about whether or not Jorginho is good, what we want is to have it from the starting place of, okay, he does this thing which we know is valuable a lot. So if he's bad, if he shouldn't be playing, then we need to account for the fact that he shouldn't be playing despite the fact he does this thing well. Yeah. Or if we think he's good and he should be playing, we need to say, okay, this thing that he does really well is worth it. And that's like a better place to start that conversation from than if you didn't have that information. That all of that is would be very useful, I think. Like there was <laughs> that I don't there's there was that thing about Jorginho that I saw today that you know when City exploited him just because he he tends to gamble without the ball when he yep. where he presses high and the sequence that I watched it was like no need for him to do that. Like the team was was kind of like in an abysmal defensive shape and he just kind right. of left his post and then they just cut through and they and Guardiola apparently had studied that like this is what he does so this is how we get through when he makes right. that gamble you pass behind him that stuff is like I don't think like the <laughs> you'll never get away from watching film completely to no, just pick up stuff on that like and that kind of stuff yeah yeah, no, I mean, we have this conversation with coaches, actually, where they will be frustrated when you sort of talk on an aggregate level, right? They'll be like, well, what about this? What about that? What about the other thing? And it's like a reasonable approach to have where you're like, look, this, you know, it's not all that useful to me if we can't then point to specifics. And, and, and like, and what I, you know, the, the way I kind of tend to phrase it is, look, we're not going to use numbers to replace you watching video. But yeah. in a week of preparation, your your team might have time to watch, what, three full games, five full games of your opponent coming up? What we can help you do is figure out which of the games that that team has played will be the best ones for you to watch. And we can, you know, we can use stats and have like a baseline level and understanding to say, okay, these are the teams that have played the most similarly or that have a specific thing that you want to analyze. Like these are the matches that you want to watch your opponent play in order to best prepare. We're never going to be a substitute for the video, but absolutely what stats do is, is help you more efficiently understand like large groups of stuff and then boil it down as a starting point. The I think like the most recent example I have where like stats like just changed everything for me and like told me so much that I needed to know and eliminated some of my presumptions was when we signed at Militao, we started, you know, just kind of asking the questions and, and saying and asking Portuguese people, what right. what is this guy good at? And a lot of the common traits were like, he's an amazing, he's amazing on the ball. And we looked up like every metric. We watched a bunch of film, and there was like he he has like nothing in the. He's like not a top ten defender in Portugal in terms of like anything with the ball at his feet, passing right. accuracy poor. Uh, like uh, it was, 
and that was like we opened it opened our eyes and like completely changed the scouting report we wrote (laughs) it was it was kind of just i guess staggering to to kind of look at it that way the one that blew me away was actually maybe last year or two years ago you wrote an article for the ringer and you threw in oppda which is opponents pass opponent passes per defensive action which i didn't know existed until i read that in your piece and that changed a lot for me because that told me so much about barcelona style of play because i i right when i watched them it seemed like they're such a huge pressing team that season and it turns out like their numbers actually regressed in terms of the press under valverde Yes, that was that was, that, really was cool. that that year Barcelona were playing really different and that number picked it up pretty well. Like there are there are a lot of different ways to measure pressing and and looking at the passes per defensive action is is one. You can sort of look at where a team's average defensive action is on the field, like how far away from their own goal it is. Um you can look at strings of possession, how long, you know, how long do they allow play, you know, opposing teams to keep the ball before they try to pressure them. All sorts of stuff like that. And there's no like one right stat to, to do it but when you look at like three or four different ways of looking at it they tend to they tend to paint a pretty clear picture and what i do right because i'm i'm stats based is what what the way i watch the game is that i will look at those numbers and then i will sit down to watch either a live match or film with those numbers in mind because again i feel like it's the start of my understanding and then i watch through that lens and i think oh okay yeah those numbers actually accurately capture what i'm seeing or oh look at that for xyz reason these numbers are missing something right. and then i need to like further de- delve into that and understand what's going on yeah exactly uh, and that's that's where i think some people just most people get it. So, I, you know, I don't want to generalize. Most, right. most yeah. people get it, I think. Um, some people on ESPN who are angry just don't get it. And <laughs> that's fine. <laughs> um, one, I guess one stat that I always found useful when doing NBA writing was the on-off stat, which yeah. uh, I don't think is necessarily applicable in football because there's 11 people playing, first of all. So, like, it doesn't, there's a lot more to the picture in the context and like let's say you know x player played this game the real like there was a stat floating around a couple years ago in real during 16 17 when zidane just couldn't lose he had more trophies than losses and the stat was like whenever lucas vasquez plays real Madrid win and like yeah you know who else wins every time like the right. entire team wins just right. like that's <laughs> right. that's the stat right. that's all you need to know but one thing that i would be interested in is is when this player is on the field, let's say this attacker is on the field, this team creates X chances, amount of right. chances. There's this much movement. Whereas when he's not in the field, it's like stagnant or chances aren't created. How far yeah, away do you think we are from something like that? So what's hard is it's not just that there's 11 players on the field. It's that there's only three substitutions in a match. Right. So yeah, such a large portion of the time, it's yeah. not that – it's not a difference between one person, but you might say, well, these three players on this flank almost always play together. So it's very hard to disentangle, you know, uh, like, uh, I, I think, I think I probably a good example of this is like, I'll just take out the winger for a second, but like Marcelo and Ronaldo had such an understanding, right? Mm -hmm. Especially as Ronaldo sort of later in his career moved towards forward and it created all sorts of space for like Marcelo on the wing. And you would, you would, you know, I would look at that and and disentangling who did what in that relationship between those two players is very, very difficult. Um, And so I do think like you can, 
you can use it in in stretches. You can use there's some stuff you can do. Like you can establish, you know, if, if a player is a particular workhorse for a team, if they end, if they end up taking a large percentage of the shots, okay, what happens when they're not there? Which is you know sort of relevant for Madrid at the moment. Yeah. Um, you can you can do the same thing for passing. If, if if one player is like super duper intrinsic to to how the team moves the ball forward, and often it's not necessarily a player you would expect. Like Tottenham this year have relied on Kieran Trippier at right back as a player who they both pass the ball forward to a lot, and then he passes the ball forward a lot. And they have at times struggled when they haven't had him on the right wing. So despite his defensive like his defensive shortcomings, he's been very important to that team. Um, but it gets really hard if you're not looking at a super contextualized situation just because there are – you know, people have tried to do all sorts of various kinds of on-off metrics. And it's just really, really hard to to separate out among players who spend a lot of time on the field together a lot of the time who you should credit or who you should blame for various things happening. What's the – one stat where you see thrown around and you kind of just roll your eyes? Um, that's, a, that's a really good question because it, it changes um, sort of as as things come become more understood or less understood. Like a few years ago, I would have said passing percentage, right? Mm-hmm. Like because you would, you know, like just straight up simple passing percentage. Center backs look like the best passers in the world because yeah, they play the, like the most simple passes, and and obviously that's absurd and not right. Yeah. So, but I think people don't do that as much anymore for that reason. Or um, like wingers who cross, their percentage right. will be low because those crosses just won't connect as much. Exactly, and and there is a thing where somebody will look at like a, a winger who like completes two of twenty two crosses and be like, ha ha. And, <laughs> I don't know like to me part of it is like that's actually a pretty good job of getting into place to put the ball into the you know into the box way two times in a match that's that's indicative of a team that is dominating game mm. um and and when that's the case you're less likely to complete crosses because the defense is packed in anyway um i think maybe save percentage right now because looking at straight up save percentage without accounting for the kind of shots a keeper is facing is is really tough um you know a good keeper on a bad team will almost always have a worse save percentage than a bad keeper on a good team. Mm. That's a, that's a great point. Um, there's actually a question about that too, so we'll bring that forward. Uh, well, I asked this question last season to uh, Jamie Kemp, who works for Opta, and he said the one that drives him nuts is like there was a stat floating around last season or two seasons ago about Kevin De Bruyne was this was like at his apex before he got injured. Like he was just on fire, arguably top five player in the world. And it was like no player in the Premier League has been dispossessed more times than him. And it's like, right. yeah. but do you know how much he has the ball at his feet? Like it's ridiculous how many people he takes on and he actually gets past them. And like, you know, that happens. Like even I was, right. and after he said that, I was conscious to keep track because then you go and look at Messi's dispossessed stats and he actually gets dispossessed quite a bit. Right, exactly. Yeah. Guys who have the ball at their feet, they're going to lose the ball more than guys that don't. Um, And the flip side of that is like you'll often see that like people – one of the things we do at StatsBomb is we adjust defensive stats for possession. Because if you don't do that, Mm. if you just look at tackles and interceptions, what you end up seeing is just, oh, look, these are all the players on bad teams that never have the ball. Mm. Um, 
And so when I see those thrown out, I also sort of cringe. And you're like, well, yes, obviously the defensive midfielder for the 17th place team in the league has tons of tackles. That's all he does. Yeah, yeah. Um, so before this podcast, uh, I told our patrons that you were coming on the show. So they have specific questions for you directed towards Mike Goodman. Uh, first question is from Adrian. He says, since Madrid under Zidane seems to cross so much, statistically, how effective is the strategy? Is there a way to make crossing more effective? The, you, the quick answer is that crossing in general is not the most effective way to score, score goals. Yeah. Um, well, crossing to head is not an effective way to score goals. Uh, cutbacks are probably the most effective way to score goals in soccer. Mm. If you can create situations where you're cutting the ball back, um, that's, that's like the gold standard. Um, and one of the things that, and so, and right, there's a range in between. So if you're doing a lot of low crossing, okay, that, that's, that's not that bad. If you're doing crossing against a defense that has been unsettled, that's not that bad. But if all you're doing is, is sort of lumping it into a crowded box, that, that will often play into a defense's hand. Oftentimes what ends up happening is that that is the thing the defense is allowing you to do. Yeah. And so those are going to be low percentage crosses. Yeah. Um, now, the thing about Madrid, at least for you know Zidane's first tenure, is that they had so many good players. And they were so good at always having the ball in the final third that it wasn't like a big deal deal that the way they were attacking was somewhat i don't want to say simplistic but basic right they would because they were creating so many chances and the chances weren't like i mean and there would always be enough pretty good ones they were just burying opposition and that's like that's a legitimate way to approach the game especially when you have the, the talent level that madrid has um it will be interesting to see if they continue to try to do that now, I mean, who knows what the team will look like next year. Yeah. But you need somebody at the spear of that attack that can get tons of shots is, is the thing yeah. if you're going to do it that way. And they haven't, they've never been able to replace Ronaldo's shot volume. And I mean, nope. there's no surprise there. Like you, and you mentioned like the crossing in the context of just like when the team had the ball in the final third so much. There were like times where the crossing was just, it was just relentless pressure and the defense was clearly uncomfortable right. dealing with it. Right. Whereas there are games like this past weekend where there's there are people cross, crossing and Ronaldo's gone. Neither Bale nor Mariano are on the pitch, and Valencia are just like this is great. Keep just keep keep right. keep singing this in where, where Garage is heading them all away. Like you know, yeah. One, I mean, one of the things about Ronaldo is that his mere presence unsettles defenses. Yeah. And he was so good in the air and in in sort of that stretch of his career that. There, like he would draw defenders to him, like by default, which you know sort of was like kind of the point. And if you don't have that, if you don't have something that is unsettling defenses when they're packed in, that's when crossing becomes a real problem. Not having a plan B. And like that, I I I never knew I needed to see Ronaldo and Mandzukic together until I saw it with Juve this season. Whereas like when you have two of them who are so good at it. Yeah, you see, like right. one of them making space for the other one, and like defenders have no idea how to deal with it. It's it's it's, it's not an accident that Juventus are crossing a ton this year. Yeah, like that's. I mean, there are very few players who I would look at and say, "Well, look, if you're going to build a you know an attack around crossing to this guy, that's a good idea." But like Ronaldo's one of them, and then you you sort of complement that with Mandzukic, and 
yeah, that's that's going to work. On that note, Casper Moscala asks, what are what are good strategies for playing against teams like Valencia yesterday or that Atletico used to play? Meaning teams that drop deep, they're well-organized, uh, they count on score from counterattacks. No strategy seems good. If crossing, the number of tall and tough center backs and double pivots will clear the ball. If trying to di- dribble the ball in, well-organized defenses can extract the ball quite easily or simply block the shot. What kind of players do you need for chosen strategies, and how do you safeguard against counterattacks? So, I, I but I think the essential question. There's a few questions in here, but the essential one is, what is the solution when you? I mean, the <laughs> the answer is if you're playing against a good defensive team, they're a good defensive team for a reason, and there's no there's right. no foolproof solution. Right. But the thing that I will always come back to, and there are a number of different ways to do it, is that you need to unsettle the defense somehow. Now, you can do that by having a really physical presence in the box who is just going to body defenders. You can do that by having a fantastic dribbling winger who, like, even if he's not going to create a goal for himself, will beat a man and force another man to cover and play the right pass, which forces another man to cover. And part of what good defensive teams are doing is they are always making the next rotation sharply and making the right decision but if you have players who can operate in tight spaces and can force um force defenders to keep having to make decisions the hope is that eventually that breaks down um and then the third way is obviously if you can really combine with short quick passing the middle it does the same thing as, as, as taking players out of the match with dribbling but there's no like guarantee there and a lot of times what you end up doing against very defensive teams is just, you know, taking a lot of bad shots and hoping one of them goes in. And, you know, at some point that's not a terrible shot. It doesn't feel good when it doesn't happen, right? Like, you know, when you take 20 shots and don't score, it feels like you were never going to score. But, you know, taking 20 shots gives you a real good chance to get lucky on one of them. And sometimes that is just the best you're going to end up with. Yeah, I, I mean, I feel I feel the same way about crosses to an extent. It's like crossing is such a low predict, low uh, probability of scoring. But if you, I guess, if you hit enough of them in, you increase yeah, the, your chances the, of connecting on one of them. Right. The issue with crossing, and this is also the issue with taking sort of like pot shots from distance. It's they're not bad on their own if that's the best you can do. The problem with them is is that frequently teams settle for doing it when there are better options. Yeah. Um. If you're playing against a real good defensive team, it's possible there won't be better options. But oftentimes, teams that don't don't aren't crossing the ball well are crossing the ball from very deep, very wide areas would be better served to pass the ball more and recycle it, and probe, be more patient and probe and try to find opportunities. See, that's a stat I'd be interested in seeing. Um, which players? create the most chances against low blocks is it yeah, someone unpredictable like an isco or marcelo or is it some some kind of different kind of player yeah and th- that is th- that is one of the things that like we help to accomplish sort of with with using a, like a passing model is 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 to quantify not only that but which players deserve the credit for it so like mm. um oftentimes like if you watch manchester city uh, they are fantastic at basically creating open nets for themselves to tap yeah. into. I feel like every Manchester City goal is the same. It's like a replay. It's just a cutback right. and into an open net. It's amazing. 
but a lot of the time what's happening is it's not even the player who's playing the cutback that has done the work to unsettle everybody. Right. He's receiving the ball after two or three passes that have sliced open the defense. And and what you want to do really when you're sort of looking at this statistically is make sure that you're giving those players credit, not just the guy who's playing the pass and the guy who's tapping it in. Yes, which uh, which has a... <laughs> And and that you need to just be open minded and kind of look at every every piece. Right, and yeah. and like right, and then the aim is hopefully that you can build a model that sort of encompasses it all. But it's a, it's a long and tricky process. Elian Zacco says, "Why isn't there a stat like expected goals and assists to measure the performance of a goalkeeper or defender?" Which so, there is, I guess. So, um, but not easily accessible. Maybe so. There isn't there there isn't for defenders. Um, yeah. And this that's because defending is oftentimes what makes defenders great is what doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. Um. So like. Yeah. It's very hard to measure negative space. Um. Is, is is what it comes down to. And what a defender is supposed to be doing versus what he's actually doing is very context dependent. Um. You know, if a defender looks like he's preventing a lot of goals, like he's blocking a lot of shots or he's making a last ditch tackles a lot, you know, you can oftentimes make the argument that actually he's not playing well, that it, it is it is decisions that he's making that's letting the attacker get into those places to begin with. And then right. he's recovering. Well. Right. And sometimes it's not his fault. Right. Like sometimes he's just exposed by the rest of the team. So but that's that's why for defenders, it's very tricky for keepers. um, so Statsbomb has developed, uh, we call it a uh, post-shot expected goal. Other, play- other people have done this as well. Um, and the reason it, it's, it's been later is that it's harder to do. So expected goals measures the shots from the point when they're kicked. They're not worried about uh, the trajectory of the ball. They're not worried about where the keeper is. They're not even really – like. All they're worried about is like, okay, you've gotten in a position to shoot, and now you're shooting. That's what we're measuring. And there are a lot of reasons for that, but that, that's basically what works best. Um, obviously, with a keeper, that doesn't work, right? Like, he's only facing the shots on target, and all the shots that went off target have some expected goal value. What you need to do with a keeper is you need to measure um, with post-shot information. You need to measure with information about where the ball is going, where the ball has ended up. Um, You need to measure with information about where the goalkeeper is. And that's something that was not in the data before. Um, You know, the... Not not to toot our own horn too much, but what StatsBomb does is on every shot, we don't only... Like we, we we record not only the shooter, but the location of everybody in the frame. Teammates, defenders, goalkeeper... And so then you can build that information into a model that measures how a goalkeeper is doing against the shots he's actually faced. Um, now, our model is new. We've only, we only rolled it out this year. So we don't have a ton of historical data to test it on and stuff. Right. So I'm very... Um, and that's not available publicly either. Like, correct. It's yeah. not available publicly. And this, this is just a... You know, this is just a broader challenge with data where... like. It costs a lot to do this, to, to yeah. do the um, data collection for a company. And you have to do it with like a, you know, you're selling it. Like that's that's the point. It's not like American sports where the league owns the data. Um, yeah. And so, you know, other places are then, 
it's, it's, it's a different relationship. So, right. So our goalkeeper stuff is not available publicly. Um, I, I, I'm, you know, expected goals wasn't available publicly for, for years after it sort of was um, initially, I don't want to say invented, developed, whatever. Um, so, you know, as time goes on and certain things become less cutting edge, more things become public. But, yeah, we can now look at at least descriptively how keepers are doing i am um loath to say anything definitive based just on those numbers because it's so new um but we can certainly look at them and say oh yeah actually david de gea really really good yeah like that shows up yeah and uh, that's i mean that's all i i find xg for goalkeepers actually really useful in that sense or it would be if we ever had like easy access to it like with all the goalkeeper debates i think there was one that was really helpful that just came out for a second last year with De Gea, which is like, this is his XGA. And right. like, he's outperforming that like crazy. And that's why he's so good. It's like, right. And what was interesting about actually that United team is that what well, I can tell, I, I know now his keeper performance against the shots he actually faced was exactly w- the level that, um, United outperformed expected goals against by. So, like, mm. he really did account for just, like, all of that. Yeah. Um, this year, where he's had more of an understated season, he's actually been almost as good, but the, like, the the distribution has been weird. So, like, teams have been getting more shots on target than you might expect them to. Um so and then he's been saving a ton of them but because there are it's like sort of he's he's been more challenged it, it's it's getting buried under the numbers that he's still actually that good do you think we'll get to a stage where we'll record expected goals for non-shots like for example a player yes. has an open net fluffs it completely doesn't even make contact with the ball so there are there are limited situations now where that gets into expected goal calculations. Oh, okay. Situations exactly like that, and okay, every every that. model does it slightly differently. But yeah, the, the one of the ultimate goals is to be able to look at sort of any moment on the field and have a like a a sense of what percentage chance each team has of scoring in that moment, right? Hmm. So like, you know, it. it before kickoff, right? It's like 50-50, right? It's just like either team. And then if we're threatening, you know, if, if the team with the ball is threatening the goal very deep in opponent territory, well, they have a high chance of scoring, but the distribution of players on the field affects how vulnerable they are to counterattack. So what you'd really like love to do in that moment is be able to quantify like how exposed are they if they lose the ball? And so, like, how likely is it that the other team would be able to put together a goal-scoring counterattack? Mm. And you really do want to be able to build out from shots to just all of these moments where you're passing and moving the ball to say, okay, how likely is this moment to turn into a goal? Um, I mean, that's that's a very ambitious sort of aspiration. But when you're thinking about, like, sort of, like, how analytics people think about the game, that's what they're thinking about. That, like thinking about, okay, what are the chances that we're going to score? What are the chances that you're going to score? What are the factors that go into those chances? And how can we, we measure it and calibrate it to, to sort of be encompassing of all of those things? Just to take us in a different direction. The last question is um, not analytics related, but it's from Brandon Stevens. And he said, 
Today, there have been rumors swirling that Adrian Rabio and Real Madrid have reached a verbal agreement. Although I think since he sent that question in, it's been reported <laughs> that he's that's not going to happen. Uh, who knows? It's transfer season from now until basically August. Uh, while this has yet to be universally confirmed, let's assume it happens. Let's also assume that A, Rabio and Pogba are not mutually exclusive and Paul Pogba also joins the club. B, Mbappe eventually comes to the club, whether it's this summer or further down the road. And C, the team starts morphing into a hybrid of the Spanish and French national teams without Benzema exiled. What would your hypothetical starting 11 be for an exclusively Spanish and French Real Madrid team? You can use anyone currently in the squad, as well as anyone we've been linked to seriously enough to think it's a distinct possibility they end up here one day, as I have done above. Uh, admittedly, a, it's that's a fun so question. It, it is pretty fun. It's a hypothetical. Um, you know what's really interesting about sort of the Spanish part of this is that most of the best Spanish players are either on Madrid or just have no chance of going to Madrid, right? Hmm. Actually, this is true for some of the French players. Like, no, like, obviously, like, Antoine Griezmann is not going to be a Real Madrid player. Like, it's not going to happen. And the, the, the sort of the younger crop of midfielders he, are mostly Atleti midfielders, and the older crop of midfielders are mostly Barca midfielders. So, um, on the Spanish side. Yeah. So it, it gets, it gets kind of complicated. <laughs> yeah. It, if you're, if, especially if you're looking at realistic names. Right. Um, but uh, whatever. So in midfield, we're starting with Pogba and Rabio, apparently. <laughs> um, so, I, I, I mean, I, I guess instinctively I'd want a third midfielder and, like, I, I don't know. Obviously, N'Golo Conte would be the guy, but, like, I don't know. I guess Conte is not that crazy. I guess it's not that crazy, yeah. right? I, and, and if not him, maybe, like, somebody like Ndombele, which seems – I don't think they've been linked in any way. And I think that like, – They've been linked. There's been – ever since Zidane got appointed, we got linked to almost every French player, and Ndombele was one of them. There you go. Yeah. I, I mean, he, he, he's, a, he's, he's a, a younger sort of more I, – I, I think he's, he's great and will be great. But he, he's a guy that sort of does defensive work and sort of lots of possession work that you could see fitting in quite well with, with Pogba and Rabiot. Um, let's see. In attack, keep Benzema, sure. I mean, eventually not, but for now, there's no reason not to. Um, Can I ask you about Griezmann for a second? Just yeah. to interject. I This whole thing like with him and the decision again, it, <laughs> it, it just drives me nuts. But I'm wondering if you're just going to piss Atletico fans off that much and you're just going to do this again and then leave them. You might as well just go all the way and go to Real Madrid instead of Barcelona. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, look, he's great. I, he's, I mean... You're getting to the point with him where it's the same with the hazard problem, which is like you're going to pay a lot of money for the tail end of their prime. Mm. Um, but he's obviously like, you know, couldn't play anywhere across the front three. Yeah. Um, I think he like, would be a, a huge help to Real Madrid. I honestly like I would sure. take him, but I just yeah. I don't think it's going to happen. But I'm just, yeah. if I'm an uh, Atletico fan, I just I it drives me nuts to deal with that every summer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> At the same time, like he's so good for them. I think they probably like get really annoyed for three weeks, and then by the ge- ge- you know like fifth game week of the season, yeah, yeah. they're like, they're "Oh right, yeah. Yeah. yeah, 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 this guy's good." <laughs> um, all right, so we've we've got we've got Benzema, uh, we've got Mbappe. Like, yes. Whatever you already you already have Isco. Just stick Isco at the other wing. Like let 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 Mbappe take all the shots, and Benzema do his Benzema thing where he takes like two and a half shots a game, but they're really really good shots, and he's great at. He's great at featuring Mbappe. Just stick his go over there. Like, don't sweat it. Um, and then, like, 
the I mean, keeper keeper is De Gea is the answer. Um, yes, that that was really easy. Yeah. Um, and then I guess like the defensive line, like I don't know, like one day Sergio Ramos is gonna hit a wall, and because of the way he plays, I feel like he's gonna hit the wall quickly when it happens. Um, but he's still good. Like I, I, I would great. Yeah, I wouldn't touch him and Varane at all. Like, I mean, perfect. him and Varane, I think, have... They shouldn't be vilified for this at all, for, like, what's happening. If you watch them, it's I just, like, they're spread so thin in, like, every game. I mean, game. I, think, I think a lot of this year has been uh, has been a real sort of testament to what Ramos can do. Yeah. Because a lot of what Madrid has done this season has been, like, eh, well, I guess we're not going to really defend in midfield. And, like, hopefully Ramos will win us the ball back. Yeah. And he does. Like, that's really been a lot of what the approach has been. And it's I think it's because, like, in past years, they could basically do that. And because you had Ronaldo, you know, sort of, like, shifting the gravity of the field so far into attack, it was just very hard for teams to really put concerted pressure on the back line. And now it's become easier. Um, I've gone far afield from the question. Oh, we need fullbacks. Um, I don't know. I would just I, I would stick with Adrizola. I guess I like him. Yeah. Um, it's really and, and, you know, full fullback fullback pickings are fairly slim across the world. Um, Real Madrid are deep in that position. Yeah, they have, but, right. Well, We're not allowed term, to play but, Marcelo. Right. Uh, Regulon would be the obvious choice, I think. Yeah, and I don't I don't think there's anybody who I would like. Like, like, are you really going to get excited about Lucas Digne? Like, I don't think so. No, I, don't <laughs> and, think, and, I think Regulon's way more promising than Digne at this point. Yeah. Uh, uh, like, you know, you think about the, the French national team, they were playing Lucas Hernandez there, so that that's not going to happen. Um, they do own Teo Hernandez, the brother. That's, tr- <laughs> that's true. Yeah. Uh, um, I, yeah. Kind of related to this kind of not, what... Do you think Deschamps is crazy for not picking Laporte? Oh, it's hard to criticize him given how successful France has been in sure. the last four years. But yeah, I don't understand. Laporte's really good. I just, I just wonder, like, because Spain is in desperate need of a Sergio Ramos partner in the national team. Yes. And if he's not going to get called up for France at some point, I think he should just—he has this—he's eligible to just play I for mean, Spain. I think the problem is like, yeah, no, I mean, I. Uh, it, he's really good, and like I don't, I, I honestly, I don't understand why he's not um, part of the setup. More. The explanation was that I think he's, he's, uh, is he? He's left footed, isn't he? Or he is left footed. And Deschamps doesn't want an inverted fullback or something, or he, or he wants a left footed, or he. Uh, he a, only want, I mean, a right footed for a left center back or something. Yeah, and one, well, he's got Umtiti ahead of him as a left footed left side center back. Yeah. Um, and then if you're gonna not take a, I, I think I think the logic is you are he, that he doesn't want to ever play a left-footed center back on the right side, but if he has to, he will play a right-footed center back on the left. So if Laporte is not going to start, then he wants a backup who's right-footed. Um, yeah, which to me seems too cute by half, but I mean, you know. That's the explanation. Uh, I actually I've kept you long enough. I think <laughs> you have like you have like five different things, jobs and <laughs> publications yeah. to write for and edit and stats. And so uh, I really appreciate your time, Mike Goodman. Can you please tell everybody where they can find your work and and also make sure to also say 
what you guys do on the Double Pivot Pod because it's a really cool podcast. So sure. Um, the bulk of my time is I'm managing editor at StatsBomb.com. As you know, I've, I've published some of your stuff there. Um, and I, I write there a couple times a week, two, three times a week. Um, then I write at The Athletic, Athletic Soccer, uh, yeah, about once a week. Um, elsewhere, The Ringer, 538 from time to time. Um, then we've got the Double Pivot Podcast, which is me and Michael Kelly. Uh, it's for free once a week. We also have a Patreon where we do a second podcast every week. And for higher level subscribers, we also do like a, a game preview, um, like we pick one European game a week and we just do like 10 to 15 minutes sort of of like a statistical deep dive preview. Um, and we try to do like interesting games for that. Like um, like this week we uh, we did like a good 10 minutes like breaking down Atalanta, who we both really like. Um, so we, we try to get kind of in the weeds. Um, but I mean, that's what the podcast is. It's 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 really it's it's analytics it's soccer analytics focused. So we sort of like talk a lot of numbers but try to keep it loose and and accessible for soccer fans um but yeah that's that's the podcast we love it that that that, that that's like my baby like that that's 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 the thing that kelly and i as we've moved all around sort of media have have kept consistent for the last almost four years at this point i mean we launched right before the last eh, wow four three, years three three years yeah um yeah so that's uh that's, that's I actually all, remember. That's all I, the many things I do. <laughs> listen to your first one ever, and it does not seem that long ago. I guess it was. It was. We launched right before the last Euro, so three years. Okay. Um, and we launched the Patreon side a year, almost exactly a year ago, a little over a year ago. Um, and it's been great. We, somehow we managed to find like over two hours of content every week. <laughs> it's amazing, isn't it? Like even I've. So, uh, I can relate on that note, just the sheer fact that I could talk about football for hours. Right. Like I can, I can just map something out of my head and be like, okay, I'm gonna stick 20 minutes to the subject, and then lo- I'm looking at the podcast now. It's almost an hour, so it's like yeah, I just yeah, love yeah, doing I'm, this. I, I, last week or two weeks ago, I went on a like a six-minute Watford monologue. Like it just happens. It happens. Huh? It's like I. That's why I love podcasts so much because if you have the freedom to just yeah. go, just no, it's great. I, I absolutely do it. Uh, everybody, please check out Mike's work. It's it's amazing. Don't miss out on it. If you do miss out, you're really missing out on quite a bit. So oh, you can always find me on Twitter. It's at the M underscore L underscore G, and all of my work ends up there. And we'll link that in the show notes. You can click on it directly. Thank you so much, Mike, for doing this, and uh, we'll chat soon. All right, thanks. This was a lot of fun. Appreciate it. <laughs>